Chapter twenty seven, part three of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume three, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter twenty seven. Civil Wars, Reign of Theodosius, Part Three. Among the ecclesiastics who illustrated the reign of Theodosius, Gregory Nazianzen was distinguished by the talents of an eloquent preacher. The reputation of miraculous gifts added weight and dignity to the monastic virtues of Martin of Tours, but the palm of episcopal vigor and ability was justly claimed by the intrepid Ambrose. He was descended from a noble family of Romans. His father had exercised the important office of Praetorian Prefect of Gaul, and the son, after passing through the studies of a liberal education, attained in the regular gradation of civil honors the station of consular of Liguria, a province which included the imperial residence of Milan. At the age of thirty-four, and before he had received the sacrament of baptism, Ambrose, to his own surprise, and to that of the world, was suddenly transformed from a governor to an archbishop. Without the least mixture, as it is said, of art or intrigue, the whole body of the people unanimously saluted him with the episcopal title. The concord and perseverance of their acclamations were ascribed to a preternatural impulse, and the reluctant magistrate was compelled to undertake a spiritual office, for which he was not prepared by the habits and occupations of his former life. But the active force of his genius soon qualified him to exercise, with zeal and prudence, the duties of his ecclesiastical jurisdiction, and while he cheerfully renounced the vain and splendid trappings of temporal greatness, he condescended, for the good of the church, to direct the conscience of the emperors, and to control the administration of the empire. Gratian loved and revered him as a father, and the elaborate treatise on the faith of the Trinity was designed for the instruction of the young prince. After his tragic death, at a time when the Empress Justina trembled for her own safety, and for that of her son Valentinian, the Archbishop of Milan was dispatched, on two different embassies, to the court of Treves. He exercised, with equal firmness and dexterity, the powers of his spiritual and political characters, and perhaps contributed, by his authority and eloquence, to check the ambition of Maximus, and to protect the peace of Italy. Ambrose had devoted his life and his abilities to the service of the Church. Wealth was the object of his contempt. He had renounced his private patrimony, and he sold without hesitation the consecrated plate for the redemption of captives. The clergy and people of Milan were attached to their archbishop, and he deserved the esteem, without soliciting the favor or apprehending the displeasure of his feeble sovereigns. The government of Italy, and of the young emperor, naturally devolved to his mother Justina, a woman of beauty and spirit, but who in the midst of an orthodox people had the misfortune of professing the Arian heresy, which she endeavoured to instil into the mind of her son. Justina was persuaded that a Roman emperor might claim, in his own dominions, the public exercise of his religion, and she proposed to the archbishop, as a moderate and a reasonable concession, that he should resign the use of a single church, either in the city or the suburbs of Milan. But the conduct of Ambrose was governed by very different principles. The palaces of the earth might indeed belong to Caesar, but the churches were the houses of God, and within the limits of his diocese, he himself, as the lawful successor of the apostles, was the only minister of God. 
the privileges of Christianity, temporal as well as spiritual, were confined to the true believers, and the mind of Ambrose was satisfied that his own theological opinions were the standard of truth and orthodoxy. The archbishop, who refused to hold any conference or negotiation with the instruments of Satan, declared with modest firmness his resolution to die a martyr, rather than to yield to the impious sacrilege, and Justina, who resented the refusal as an act of insolence and rebellion, hastily determined to exert the imperial prerogative of her son. As she desired to perform her public devotions on the approaching festival of Easter, Ambrose was ordered to appear before the council. He obeyed the summons with the respect of a faithful subject, but he was followed without his consent by an innumerable people. They pressed with impetuous zeal against the gates of the palace, and the affrighted ministers of Valentinian, instead of pronouncing a sentence of exile on the Archbishop of Milan, humbly requested that he would interpose his authority to protect the person of the emperor, and to restore the tranquillity of the capital. But the promises which Ambrose received and communicated were soon violated by a perfidious court, and during six of the most solemn days, which Christian piety had set apart for the exercise of religion, the city was agitated by the irregular convulsions of tumult and fanaticism. The officers of the household were directed to prepare, first the portion, and afterwards the new basilica, for the immediate reception of the emperor and his mother. The splendid canopy and hangings of the royal seat were arranged in the customary manner, but it was found necessary to defend them, by a strong guard, from the insults of the populace. The Arian ecclesiastics, who ventured to show themselves in the streets, were exposed to the most imminent danger of their lives, and Ambrose enjoyed the merit and reputation of rescuing his personal enemies from the hands of the enraged multitude. But while he labored to restrain the effects of their zeal, the pathetic vehemence of his sermons continually inflamed the angry and seditious temper of the people of Milan. The characters of Eve, the wife of Job, of Jezebel, of Herodias, were indecently applied to the mother of the emperor, and her desire to obtain a church for the Arians was compared to the most cruel persecutions which Christianity had endured under the reign of paganism. The measures of the court served only to expose the magnitude of the evil. A fine of two hundred pounds of gold was imposed on the corporate body of merchants and manufacturers. An order was signified, in the name of the emperor, to all the officers and inferior servants of the courts of justice, that during the continuance of the public disorders they should strictly confine themselves to their houses, and the ministers of Valentinian imprudently confessed that the most respectable part of the citizens of Milan was attached to the cause of their archbishop. He was again solicited to restore peace to his country, by timely compliance with the will of his sovereign. The reply of Ambrose was couched in the most humble and respectable terms, which might, however, be interpreted as a serious declaration of civil war. His life and fortune were in the hands of the emperor, but he would never betray the church of Christ, or degrade the dignity of the episcopal character. In such a cause he was prepared to suffer whatever the malice of the daemon could inflict, and he only wished to die in the presence of his faithful flock, and at the foot of the altar. He had not contributed to excite, but it was in the power of God alone to appease the rage of the people. He deprecated the scenes of blood and confusion which were likely to ensue, and it was his fervent prayer that he might not survive to behold a ruin of a flourishing city, and perhaps the desolation of all Italy. The obstinate bigotry of Justina would have endangered the empire of her son, if, in this contest with the church and people of Milan, she could have depended on the active obedience of the troops of the palace. 
a large body of Goths had marched to occupy the basilica, which was the object of the dispute, and it might be expected from the Arian principles and barbarous manners of these foreign mercenaries that they would not entertain any scruples in the execution of the most sanguinary orders. They were encountered on the sacred threshold by the archbishop, who, thundering against them a sentence of excommunication, asked them in the tone of a father and a master whether it was to invade the house of God that they had implored the hospitable protection of the Republic. The suspense of the barbarians allowed some hours for a more effectual negotiation, and the Empress was persuaded, by the advice of her wisest counsellors, to leave the Catholics in possession of all the churches in Milan, and to dissemble, till a more convenient season, her intentions of revenge. The mother of Valentinian could never forgive the triumph of Ambrose, and the royal youth uttered a passionate exclamation that his own servants were ready to betray him into the hands of an insolent priest. The laws of the empire, some of which were inscribed with the name of Valentinian, still condemned the Arian heresy, and seemed to excuse the resistance of the Catholics. By the influence of Justina, an edict of toleration was promulgated in all the provinces which were subject to the court of Milan. The free exercise of their religion was granted to those who professed the faith of Rimini, and the emperor declared that all persons who should infringe this sacred and salutary constitution should be capitally punished as the enemies of the public peace. The character and language of the Archbishop of Milan may justify the suspicion that his conduct soon afforded a reasonable ground, or at least a specious pretense, to the Arian ministers, who watched the opportunity of surprising him in some act of disobedience to a law which he strangely represents as a law of blood and tyranny. A sentence of easy and honorable banishment was pronounced, which enjoined Ambrose to depart from Milan without delay, whilst it permitted him to choose the place of his exile, and the number of his companions. But the authority of the saints, who have preached and practiced the maxims of passive loyalty, appeared to Ambrose of less moment than the extreme and pressing danger of the church, and his refusal was supported by the unanimous consent of his faithful people. They guarded by turns the person of their archbishop, the gates of the cathedral and the episcopal palace were strongly secured, and the imperial troops, who had formed the blockade, were unwilling to risk the attack of that impregnable fortress. The numerous poor, who had been relieved by the liberality of Ambrose, embraced the fair occasion of signalizing their zeal and gratitude, and, as the patience of the multitude might have been exhausted by the length and uniformity of nocturnal vigils, he prudently introduced into the church of Milan the useful institution of a loud and regular psalmody. While he maintained this arduous contest, he was instructed, by a dream, to open the earth in a place where the remains of two martyrs, Gervasius and Protasius, had been deposited above three hundred years. Immediately under the pavement of the church two perfect skeletons were found, with the heads separated from their bodies, and a plentiful effusion of blood. The holy relics were presented, in solemn pomp, to the veneration of the people, and every circumstance of this fortunate discovery was admirably adapted to promote the designs of Ambrose. The bones of the martyrs, their blood, their garments, were supposed to contain a healing power, and the preternatural influence was communicated to the most distant objects, without losing any part of its original virtue. The extraordinary care of a blind man, and the reluctant confession of several demoniacs, appeared to justify the faith and sanctity of Ambrose, and the truth of those miracles is attested by Ambrose himself, 
by his secretary, Paulinus, and by his proselyte, the celebrated Augustine, who at that time professed the art of rhetoric in Milan. The reason of the present age may possibly approve the incredulity of Justina and her Arian court, who derided the theatrical representations which were exhibited by the contrivance, and at the expense of the archbishop. Their effect, however, on the minds of the people, was rapid and irresistible, and the feeble sovereign of Italy found himself unable to contend with the favorite of heaven. The powers, likewise, of the earth interposed in the defense of Ambrose. The disinterested advice of Theodosius was the genuine result of piety and friendship, and the mask of religious zeal concealed the hostile and ambitious designs of the tyrant of Gaul. The reign of Maximus might have ended in peace and prosperity, could he have contented himself with the possession of three ample countries, which now constitute the three most flourishing kingdoms of modern Europe. But the aspiring usurper, whose sordid ambition was not dignified by the love of glory and of arms, considered his actual forces as the instruments only of his future greatness, and his success was the immediate cause of his destruction. The wealth which he extorted from the oppressed provinces of Gaul, Spain, and Britain was employed in levying and maintaining a formidable army of barbarians, collected, for the most part, from the fiercest nations of Germany. The conquest of Italy was the object of his hopes and preparations, and he secretly meditated the ruin of an innocent youth, whose government was abhorred and despised by his Catholic subjects. But as Maximus wished to occupy, without resistance, the passes of the Alps, he received, with perfidious smiles, Dominus of Syria, the ambassador of Valentinian, and pressed him to accept the aid of a considerable body of troops, for the service of a Pannonian war. The penetration of Ambrose had discovered the snares of an enemy under the professions of friendship, but the Syrian Dominus was corrupted or deceived by the liberal favor of the court of Treves, and the Council of Milan obstinately rejected the suspicion of danger, with a blind confidence which was the effect, not of courage, but of fear. The march of the auxiliaries was guided by the ambassador, and they were admitted, without distrust, into the fortress of the Alps. But the crafty tyrant followed, with hasty and silent footsteps, in the rear, and, as he diligently intercepted all intelligence of his motions, the gleam of armor, and the dust excited by the troops of cavalry, first announced the hostile approach of a stranger to the gates of Milan. In this extremity Justina and her son might accuse their own imprudence, and the perfidious arts of Maximus, but they wanted time, and force, and resolution to stand against the Gauls and Germans, either in the field or within the walls of a large and disaffected city. Flight was their only hope. Aquileia, their only refuge, and as Maximus now displayed his genuine character, the brother of Gratian might expect the same fate from the hands of the same assassin. Maximus entered Milan in triumph, and if the wise archbishop refused a dangerous and criminal connection with the usurper, he might indirectly contribute to the success of his arms, by inculcating, from the pulpit, the duty of resignation, rather than that of resistance. The unfortunate Justina reached Aquileia in safety, but she distrusted the strength of the fortifications, she dreaded the event of a siege, and she resolved to implore the protection of the great Theodosius, whose power and virtue were celebrated in all the countries of the West. A vessel was secretly provided to transport the imperial family. They embarked with precipitation in one of the obscure harbors of Venetia, or Istria, traversed the whole extent of the Adriatic and Ionian seas, turned the extreme promontory of Peloponnesus, 
and after a long but successful navigation, reposed themselves in the port of Thessalonica. All the subjects of Valentinian deserted the cause of a prince, who by his abdication had absolved them from the duty of allegiance, and if the little city of Ammonia, on the verge of Italy, had not presumed to stop the career of his inglorious victory, Maximus would have obtained, without a struggle, the sole possession of the Western Empire. Instead of inviting his royal guests to take the palace of Constantinople, Theodosius had some unknown reasons to fix their residence at Thessalonica, but these reasons did not proceed from contempt or indifference, as he speedily made a visit to that city, accompanied by the greatest part of his court and senate. After the first tender expressions of friendship and sympathy, the pious emperor of the East gently admonished Justina, that the guilt of heresy was sometimes punished in this world, as well as in the next, and that the public profession of the Nicene faith would be the most efficacious step to promote the restoration of her son, by the satisfaction which it must occasion both on earth and in heaven. The momentous question of peace or war was referred, by Theodosius, to the deliberation of his council, and the arguments which might be alleged on the side of honour and justice had acquired, since the death of Gratian, a considerable degree of additional weight. The persecution of the imperial family, to which Theodosius himself had been indebted for his fortune, was now aggravated by recent and repeated injuries. Neither oaths nor treaties could restrain the boundless ambition of Maximus, and the delay of vigorous and decisive measures, instead of prolonging the blessings of peace, would expose the Eastern Empire to the danger of a hostile invasion. The barbarians, who had passed the Danube, had lately assumed the character of soldiers and subjects, but their native fierceness was yet untamed, and the operations of a war, which would exercise their valour and diminish their numbers, might tend to relieve the provinces from an intolerable oppression. Notwithstanding these specious and solid reasons, which were approved by a majority of the council, Theodosius still hesitated whether he should draw the sword in a contest which could no longer admit any terms of reconciliation, and his magnanimous character was not disgraced by the apprehensions which he felt for the safety of his infant sons, and the welfare of his exhausted people. In this moment of anxious doubt, while the fate of the Roman world depended on the resolution of a single man, the charms of the Princess Gala most powerfully pleaded the cause of her brother Valentinian. The heart of Theodosius was softened by the tears of beauty, his affections were insensibly engaged by the graces of youth and innocence, the art of Justina managed and directed the impulses of passion, and the celebration of the royal nuptials was the assurance and signal of the civil war. The unfeeling critics, who consider every amorous weakness as an indelible stain on the memory of a great and orthodox emperor, are inclined on this occasion to dispute the suspicious evidence of the historian Zosimus. For my own part, I shall frankly confess that I am willing to find, or even to seek, in the revolutions of the world, some traces of the mild and tender sentiments of domestic life, and amidst the crowd of fierce and ambitious conquerors, I can distinguish, with peculiar complacency, a gentle hero, who may be supposed to receive his armour from the hands of love. The alliance of the Persian king was secured by the faith of treaties, the martial barbarians were persuaded to follow the standard, or to respect the frontiers, of an active and liberal monarch, and the dominions of Theodosius, from the Euphrates to the Adriatic, resounded with the preparations of war, both by land and sea. The skilful disposition of the forces of the East seemed to multiply their numbers, and distracted the attention of Maximus. 
He had reason to fear that a chosen body of troops, under the command of the intrepid Arbogastus, would direct their march along the banks of the Danube, and boldly penetrate through the Rhaetian provinces to the centre of Gaul. A powerful fleet was equipped in the harbours of Greece and Epirus, with an apparent design, that as soon as the passage had been opened by a naval victory, Valentinian and his mother should land in Italy, proceed without delay to Rome, and occupy the majestic seat of religion and empire. In the meanwhile, Theodosius himself advanced at the head of a brave and disciplined army, to encounter his unworthy rival, who, after the siege of Emona, had fixed his camp in the neighbourhoods of Sicia, a city of Pannonia, strongly fortified by the broad and rapid stream of the Save. End of chapter 27, part 3